0: This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Hi everyone, it's Rabbi Dr. Jack Holm with the Torah Anytime Dating and Shalom Bayes series. It's an honor and pleasure to be here with you tonight. Again, anyone out there who needs my help in dating or shidduchim or matchmaking, or help you put a, a top 10 list together, or you have a, a situation with a relationship that you'd like to have a consultation with, I'd be glad to help you. Just reach out to me from anywhere in the world by calling or texting me to 305-206-1916. That's 305 305- 206 Two zero six one nine one six, or email me at drjackcohen 18 at gmail.com. I'd like to also uh, announce that uh, Torah Anytime, which is an incredible library of great, shurim, as you know, a platform in which th- hundreds, if not thousands of rabbis go, uh, are on there to lecture, will be having an amazing drive this Sunday in order to be able to completely overhaul their website and their app. Baruch Hashem, during the coronavirus epidemic, they had millions of hits, and that caused their system to crash, which led them to the conclusion that they have to upgrade the whole system. So it's going to be a fundraiser, and they'll be matching grants, so please go on Torah anytime and make a, a contribution to the greatest extent that you can, so you can continue to support this incredible organization, which is doing so much to foster and spread the light of Torah throughout the world and last but not least as we say in Hebrew the last is the most beloved I'd like to put a shout out out there for Partners in Shadduch an incredible organization which is doing so much work to help facilitate to people get married it's free you can go on there and register for yourself a friend a relative a nephew a niece put them up on there create a profile for them and as a result they'll be there they'll be seen you might sometimes go to a social event and see someone and you don't know their name you could spot them on Partners in Shidduch. I use that Uh, platform all the time to help individuals locate potential partners and set up people so I think it's an incredible organization that deserves our support and you should go on there and put up a profile for yourself or help or advise others who could use that as well in terms of the background checks, it's all taken care of, so that we know that the people that are on there are pre-screened, and it's an incredible tool to help facilitate the building of new Jewish homes. Uh, I'd like to start tonight's presentation by the following. First of all, I'll talk about the age-old question now that we're in the Corona epidemic era, should I be dating or not be dating, how should I do it? So I'm going to present a question that's been asked to a leading authority, and we're going to you know digest the response. We'll also then go into the issues of personality differences between a husband and a husband, and a wife and gift case studies. We'll talk about an incredible story of an individual, a married woman, who was married 60 years to what she calls a stranger that she never knew. And we'll close with an incredible story about a, a, a Gentile girl who consistently kept being told, are you, asked, are you Jewish? Are you Jewish? And then eventually decided, there's, my, there's gotta be something to this, maybe God's talking to me, and I should consider joining the tribe. And she eventually does and becomes an Orthodox Jew. So let's start with t- tonight's first presentation. Someone writes, I need some help figuring out this Shadukim during lockdown thing. My daughter was suggested to someone a few weeks before Pesach, and both sides mutually agreed to adopt a wait-and-see approach. Well, we've waited, and we've seen that there aren't any drastic changes on the horizon, as we see that authorities are opening up uh, states little by little, but still, there's been a bit of you know apprehension in terms of how far we can go in terms of socializing. The boys' side said they'd like a decision. They have no problem with us saying no, To him at this time. And also okay with the couple starting to date on Zoom. They would just like to be able to move on. Is it a yes or is it a no? I get it. I'm just not sure what to do. My daughter has a hard time opening up to new people. She's fine with chit chat. But when she gets stuck. When she's involved in major discussion. I'm afraid Zoom won't give my daughter a chance to show her true self. And even if they start dating on Zoom. How long do we continue that if things go well? Which has been a question that I've been fielding. Time and time again. In my work as a dating coach. Do we wait until this whole epidemic, uh, Corona, uh, COVID-19 pandemic is over to give my daughter the optimal circumstances and say if it's her soulmate, he'll still be around? Or do we go with the second best and say that what's meant to be will be and Zoom can't change that? Isn't it the answer? It's very interesting and it aligns very, very clearly with my beliefs and my strategies. We don't know enough to even make educated guesses about what's going to happen in our lives. This is all too new and we don't have enough data. And things are changing on a daily basis as authorities are constantly changing requirements. From the time this question was asked until we answer it, there already will be significant restrictions lifted. So we need to proceed with the assumption that Zoom dates are still a significant consideration and work with the limited knowledge we have. Indeed, that's what's going on today. People are starting their relationships on Zoom in some, some places and some locations like New York, many even starting to date right away physically, but they just can't go to restaurants sometimes or they have to eat outside the restaurant or they're meeting at public locations like parks, etc. Yes, we know people can date on Zoom and even get engaged on Zoom, but we don't yet know what the repercussions will be in those relationships. But if you're looking for an opinion, well, like a nose, everyone has a nose, everyone has an opinion. I think we need to move forward in these unusual times, but we need to do so with our eyes wide open. I don't know if you were struck by how your question highlighted that even coronavirus cannot hold back that which is, so, you know, Bashar, which is determined or predestined for you. Once you use the word Bashar and once you use the phrase, what's meant to be, to describe two opposite scenarios. But both are basically saying that you recognize that no matter what course you choose, Hashem wants it to happen, and whatever Hashem wants it to happen, will happen. Hashem wants it to happen, it's going to happen. If coronavirus taught us anything, it's that Hashem runs the world. So then we're left with the age-old truth. Hashem is in charge of outcomes. And we're in charge of effort. Effort comes to us. And which and, and Shishtadu seems to be most reasonable now? What should we be doing? That's a great question. What are the risks in waiting, and what are the risks in starting Zoom dating? And of course we have to personalize the answers to our friends and to our children. The risk in waiting is that you may lose this shidduch now. Will it come back later? Does that mean it wasn't meant to be? We don't know any of these questions, the answers to these questions. You also face the risk of your daughter losing her drive and motivation. Because the longer an individual remains stagnant, they become apathetic. And they lose their ambition to do. So we're seeing that staying stagnant in whatever arena is exacting a huge toll on people through this corona epidemic era. We don't want your daughter to fizzle out from hanging around for so long. The risk in using Zoom is that it's a medium that mimics connection, but really falls short of creating a connection. As anyone who has experienced Zoom will tell you, that there's something called Zoom fatigue. And that is that you just get tired and becomes very belabored. Being with someone is not the same as seeing someone. Eventually, you can start on Zoom, one, two, three, four, maybe five dates max, but you've got to then transition into regular physical dating. We've learned from social media that people can have entire personas that are exclusive to social media, which means they can have a completely different personality. There are people who are charming and funny behind the screen in a way that's quite different from their real-life personage. There's a real danger of falling for the person without knowing the persona, without knowing the person, because they're faking you out. It's also really hard to get a person to get a person, get him or get her when you have limited access to their body language because body language is critical to determining if the person that you're going out with is for you and you can only assess that when you're with the person physically it's imperative that before the couple develop a pseudo connection they need to meet in person to see how the actual person clicks with them and of course the issue of attraction can only be fairly measured in real life There's a reason a man must see a woman before he agrees to marry her. As the halacha goes, Jewish law requires mandates that a man must see the woman that he's about to get married to at least once. This becomes very complicated in the socially distant world that we're living in right now. And at what point do we justify the extreme measures needed to meet? Is it three Zoom calls? Is it five Zoom calls or more? What's the cutoff between I think there's something there we should meet and oops, I think we're very invested. What if none of this is real? And of course, in your daughter's situation, there's the added factor that she has difficulty opening up in conversation. What's becoming clear in this discussion is that nothing is clear. None of the risks in either scenario is insurmountable. While you may lose the shidduch now, it may return. While Zoom is far from perfect as a medium for connection, it's workable as a starting point. So the conclusion would be you need to start with Zoom. You should not wait on the sidelines because you may lose a good thing. It's workable as a starting point. While your daughter may have difficulty being open, it's unclear whether Zoom will help or hinder her ability to engage. As unsatisfying as it is, we have to embrace a certain level of uncertainty, which is where our lives are right now. And then we have to make the decision that on the surface offers the least damage. That seems like reasonable ashtal. So what, what the takeaway from that is that you should not wait on the sidelines. You've got to get started. You should start it with Zoom, and then take it from there. If you have any questions on that, reach out to me. And I'll be happy to let you know if it's time to transition. Now, let's talk about different personalities between a husband and a wife, or between you and your dating partner. And that's very important. When you listen to your dating partner or spouse to gain a greater understanding of who she is, asking the right questions will increase your understanding. One of the things that I do with all my clients is train them how to ask the right questions. Hi, Me that, um, you were trying to me, you yeah, Can to I call down. you back tonight, because I'm in the middle of a shiur. I'll speak to you. Yes. Hi everyone. <laughs> this is what happens when you're a and They and they call you all the time. So that was someone who I reached out to because I made a presentation for a uh, suggestion for a shirach to her mother. So I'll call her back. Now, the wrong questions will be looked upon as challenges, debates and attacks. The right questions are clarification questions. You ask them in a gentle tone of voice. One of the things that we have to be careful for is how we ask and how we speak in the tone of voice. Is it musical or is it like scratching on a chalkboard? You are asking to understand why exactly something bothers that person. You're asking why they are interested in something. If you find that your questions are becoming distressful to your dating partner or spouse, don't ask them right now. You've got to learn tact. Questions can be asked in a way that makes them seem like prying, and people don't like to feel as if they're being invaded with their privacy. Even if that person is someone you know quite long, for a quiet period of time, or it's your spouse. Your questions should serve a dual purpose. They should further your understanding of the person, and they should indicate sensitivity to the issue on your part. For this reason, a long list of questions that you can ask might be misleading. If you find that your dating partner or spouse becomes annoyed at the questioning, Wait for an opportunity to listen to how someone else asks questions your spouse appreciates and try to mimic that style. If your spouse is cooperative some of the time and not at other times, ask yourself what is different about this request that's causing her to be irritated or him to be irritated. If you can ask your spouse terrific you might get a clear picture. You might hear that certain ways of making a request create create cooperation and other ways prevent it so it's all how you ask the question it could be the words you said and the expressions that you used it could be the facial language it could be your tone of voice when you know what does work well and what doesn't you can speak in the future in ways that will bring out the best in your spouse or dating partner if the person replies I don't know perhaps you can work it out together it might be that the way you make your requests makes a difference or it might be a difference in your spouse's emotional state in a rested calm state, your spouse or dating partner will be more open to meeting your requests, your needs and wishes. Part of understanding your dating partner or spouse is to know what questions not to ask that person, him or her. By observing their facial expressions and body language, you'll pick up the knowledge of what not to ask in the future and avoid areas which are very, you know, conflict causing and irritating. Even if the person is often open to answering your questions, there are times when your spouse or dating partner would prefer privacy and you should respect that and don't start, keep pushing and pushing to try to get an answer because all you'll do is cause them to be very irritated and upset with you. Don't ask unnecessary questions when you should see, when you see it, your spouse would prefer not to talk about something. Case number one, let's study a case. I have a very controlling nature. When I wish for something to be done in a certain way, I make certain that that's the way it's going to be. My intense determination has enabled me to accomplish a lot in my life. Without acting mean or becoming angry, others are intimidated by my strong demeanor and usually back down from me. When I was married, I was certain that my spouse would be devoted to, my, to me and my every wish. My need for control was manifested in many areas of our life. This began with my insisting that the wedding be exactly the way I wanted it to be. So this was a controlling, dominating individual. After our first anniversary, I looked back at how my spouse acquiesced to my wishes and I felt that I had a great marriage. Now that we are married an entire year, how would you rate the quality of our marriage? I asked my spouse. This was one of the first times I had explicitly asked my spouse for feedback. I'm glad you asked, was the unhappy response. I probably shouldn't, wouldn't have the courage to tell you what I really feel. But now that you expressed your willingness to hear what I have to say, I want to tell you that I had never imagined that marriage would be so painful. Your controlling manner has caused me to give in to you, but I resent you immensely. I was thinking to myself that I don't know how long I can last with things being the way they are. Either you become less controlling, or you're going to lose me entirely. Wow, what an admonition. They sent me like a ton of bricks. I never realized that my desire to control people was leading me on the road to lose what I had fought on my life to get. After a number of long discussions, it became clear to me that only by giving up my demand to control and becoming more sensitive to my spouse's preferences, wants and needs, would our marriage work for both of us. I saw that by giving up the demand for total control, I would gain so much more than if I tried to make everything just the way they are, and get it my way. Okay, personality differences, let's continue. Each person on this planet has a different personality than anyone else. Nevertheless, some people are more similar than others. The more similar two people are, the easier it usually is for them to understand each other. Common beliefs leads to common expectations, leads to better cooperation. Regardless of how similar any two people are, they'll be different in many ways. Regardless of how different two people are, they'll be similar in some ways. The task of marriage is to understand your spouse's personality in order to interact in the best possible way with each other and to, be benefit, and to benefit from the differences in your personalities. Get along with what you have in common and appreciate your differences. When you understand your spouse's personality, there are many things that you might have considered as faults and problems and now you'll view them as just as differences that create challenges for your growth. Because remember, most psychologists will tell you there will always be points of disagreement between a spouse, and that's healthy. You can have up to 10 or maybe 15 points of disagreement. Personalities vary between those which are highly complex and those which are simpler, less complicated ones. What makes a personality complex? When someone has many diverse and contradictory parts. And when someone has an intense emotional nature, when one has a deep and creative intelligence together with a secretive nature, that makes that person a complex person. When two people work in harmony, personality differences can help both of them to utilize their individual strengths as a team. They've got to work as a unit. When there isn't harmony, differences cause clashes and quarrels. The challenge of personality differences is to create a peaceful relationship. Now, some especially challenging personality differences are, here's some examples. When one partner is very cold, and the other person is very warm, another... Challenging personality difference. One partner loves action, risks, and excitement. And the other partner wants routine, the familiar, and is highly conventional. Here's another personality difference that can create a crisis. When one partner is very rude and regulation-oriented, rather, I'm sorry, one partner is very rule and regulation-oriented, and the other cherishes freedom. That could be an issue as well. Another area of clashes, when one partner loves talking about feelings and the other cherishes logic and reason and considers talking about emotional, emotions a total waste of time. I had this very interestingly with an individual who's been married close to 40 years, married everyone out, and suddenly she says, my husband and I have nothing to talk about. They both had very, very busy commercial lives and worked full-time jobs, and now that the last, so they basically were able to avoid talking to each other for many, many, many decades, until, until, uh, the, 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 you know as they say it was they couldn 't cover it up anymore once the last child was married now she 's is having issues in term, in terms of her husband being too, too quiet and she 's reached out to me and i 've given her some great pointers in terms of what to do to be able to generate conversation, read a book together, learn it safer together, go out on trips together, take vacations together, discuss experiences together, discuss social activities and that are happening in the community together. Another area which could be a point of contention is when a partner has a strong need for togetherness and the other has a strong need for privacy and to be alone. Or when one partner is highly organized and the other person thrives on chaos, which we sometimes see. Here's another area of contention. When one partner loves having many guests and company over to visit and the other person loves peace and quiet and feels uncomfortable in the presence of even small crowds. And lastly, here's another area of contention. When one partner lives by the clock and always wants to do things on schedule, and the other partner is always late, and the exact time for anything is not important to that person. Husband and wife will need to work out their personality differences in ways that work for both of them. In some instances, this can be easy, easy and smooth. In other instances, this can be very difficult. It can take much effort. What is of vi- vital importance is that each one respects the other, and that both want to work things out in a way that is in their mutual best interests. There is growth to be found when two people are similar and growth when they are different. You can grow when you're similar and you grow when you're different. True growth is elevating yourself in the situation in which you find yourself. You can be challenged and you can decide, I'm going to use this opportunity to grow. Some people relate to specific personality systems and others don't. Case number two, I'm a night person while my spouse is a morning person. I'm very tired in the morning and as the day progresses, my energy increases. My spouse, on the other hand, has a lot of energy. Right away in the morning, but gets tired as the day goes on. And you have to appreciate what happens here, as they're very uniquely different. As soon as my spouse wakes up, I hear a cheerful, Good morning! Good morning! It's time to wake up. I want to wish you a super great day. Spare me, I say to myself. Cut it out and keep your good cheer to yourself. It takes me a couple of hours to really wake up. My spouse often tells me that I've been rude in the morning. I definitely don't mean to be rude or unfriendly, but I need a quiet environment for a while until I feel I'm really awake. I didn't realize how hurt my spouse felt about this until one day I was told, I feel rejected when you ignore me in the morning. I know otherwise, but I feel unloved and not respected by the way you react towards me in the morning. I explained that length that in the home in which I grew up in, we all avoided each other in the morning because our home was a place where our energy was low in the morning and we didn't really get it together energy-wise till the middle of the day. We were a caring family, but it took us a couple of hours until we were friendly and outgoing. My spouse was understanding after I explained my emotional tendencies, and no longer took my lack of enthusiasm in the morning as being personal. I accepted upon myself to speak in a friendlier manner as soon as I woke, woke up so that my spouse would be happy. Not having my spouse trying to get me to be more cheerful than I actually felt enabled me to increase my energy level even faster. So it's all a matter of communication, 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 especially when you see personality differences. Let's all go on to the next case, case number three. I have two opposite parts. Part of me is bold and willing to take emotional risks. The other part of me is highly cautious and finds it difficult to approach people or ask for things that most other people would be able to do without a second thought. My wife has difficulties with both of these. She is very grounded and balanced. She has no fear of speaking up, of negotiating, and of requesting refunds in a standard situation. But she doesn't like to take bold risks like I do. On the other hand, she can't understand why I find it difficult to confront other people in standard situations. She has no problem with that. What will they do to you anyway? What what will you lose? She says to me. Of course she's right, but I still have these two parts of me. I don't find my two parts in conflict. Each one has its time and place. My bold risk part has enabled me to accomplish a lot. I'm not one for major financial risks, so my risk taking is more in the area of not fearing failure. You really must overcome your fears of approaching people when it's appropriate to do so. My wife told me one day, learn from the times you were able to do so spontaneously. That was a valid point. I also saw that my wife herself could serve as my role model. I made a list of situations she handled remarkably well that I didn't. Then I asked her what her inner thoughts were when she confronted those people or negotiated. She told me a few ideas that I've begun to integrate into my personality. One, you always have a right to speak up for your valid rights. Two, the only power anyone else has over you is the power you give them. Something that many people know and many of our mentors have taught us. The only power people have over us is that the power we allow them to have. Don't empower others at your own expense. Realize that you have the power that anyone else has. Just allow yourself to feel it. Three, if you find it difficult to confront someone, imagine him or her as a young infant. Or see them, or him or her, as he or she will be in 120 years from now, when they're less in a position to be able to harm you or answer back to you. Four, imagine a powerful role model and see yourself talking and acting the way that person would. When my wife saw that I wanted to learn from her, she began viewing herself as my coach, and that made it easier for her to accept my weaker part, and at the same time, she was able to strengthen it. Let's go on to case number four. I'm much more emotional than my husband. I tend to get easily excited about things, both when good things happen and when something goes wrong. I speak rather quickly when I'm excited, and I become enthusiastic about many things. I'm very expressive with my emotions and the look on my face will broadcast the emotional state that I'm in at any given moment. She's just a hyper girl. My husband, on the other hand, has a mathematical mind. He speaks more slowly and deliberately than I do. He generally hides his true feelings, and his face usually isn't very expressive. Even when he's happy about something, he speaks calmly. He doesn't have as many emotional ups and downs as I do, because she's more of a huge type A. We both care for each other very much, and appreciate our differences in temperament and personality. But I have a problem trying to convince my husband about the validity of my position when we disagree with each other. The more excited and enthusiastic I get, the more wary and cautious my husband becomes. I am the more wary, and rather, this used to make me speak in a more even excited and enthusiastic manner. And my husband would react by becoming even more cautious. I finally realized that the only way I could convince my husband of the validity of my position would be to speak to him via his own style of communicating. I had to contain my enthusiasm. I had to be more calm, more controlled like him. I had to be more even-tempered. I had to try to speak more deliberately, as my husband does. I cited proofs that my position was valid. I don't always get my point across this way, but I am much more successful than I used to be. Case number five. I have a diff- I have a compulsive personality, and my spouse is a histrionic one. He's more volatile. I love lists, and I'm totally dedicated to using all my time and effort at succeeding at what I do. I tend to be a perfectionist, and I'm willing to repeat doing things until they're done to my satisfaction. Even then, I feel that I could do better, but I accept that there's a limit. My wife tends to be histrionic. She's excitable and dramatic. She overacts when things go wrong, and she shouts with excitement when she hears good news. Her emotionalism is a bit too much for me. And she constantly complains that I'm too cold and too rigid. She often tells me that I need to become more spontaneous and more relaxed. I, on the other hand, tell her that she needs to take things in a more balanced manner. We realized that what attracted us to each other was exactly our differences, which is great. We need to have differences between husband and wife, wife and husband. And we need to appreciate them and use them in a more constructive fashion. I liked my wife's emotional expressiveness, and she liked my emotional stability. We both complemented each other beautifully. But after the marriage, these differences created frequent challenges. We each wished that the other would be more similar to ourselves. When my wife sounded too excited and enthusiastic about something, and tried to convince me of its merits, I became skeptical as her emotional intensity increased. When I had to convince her about something, I tried to point out the logic and the facts, and did this in a calm and rational tone of voice. But since I didn't sound enthusiastic, she was not convinced. After many conversations about our personalities, we came to the conclusion that to make things work best for both of us, we would both need to make changes. And you have to be willing and open to making changes, ladies and gentlemen. I knew that I would need to become more emotionally expressive. My wife saw that she would need to decrease the drama when she spoke. This was not an easy task for either of us, but nevertheless, we won't put on this world to have it easy. We're here to change and to climb up and to better our personalities and improve our midos. This, however, is much better than both of us insisting that we are who we are and we just live with our mediocre marriage, which we've changed into making a fantastic marriage. Case number six. When my husband and I need to make a decision, I find feeling tant- myself feeling tense and frustrated. We were both in our 30s when we got married and we're used to making our own decisions, which is what happens when you're an older single. Now that we're married, we needed to come to common conclusions, which means now we have to make decisions together, and we were used to making decisions on our own. My husband tends to push off decisions until the last minute. He was fond of quoting a sign he once saw in his business office. If it weren't for the last minute, nothing would ever get done around here. Even with our marriage, I wasn't 100% certain that the wedding was going to be held until I was marching to the chuppah. Before that, my husband would go in circles weighing each option. He himself is is calm about weighing options as long as possible. Making the decision that causes him anxiety, while thinking about possibilities is enjoyable for him. I'm just the opposite. I feel much more comfortable after a decision is made. I like to come to a final conclusion as early as possible. Then I can work out the details and solve the problems that arise. I would prefer coming to a decision that isn't perfect as long as the decision is made. The reason decision making is so difficult for us is that my husband and I can both see many possibilities in everything we discuss. Each possibility has its pros and its cons. Even after seeming to come to a decision, my husband will usually say, wait a minute, I just thought of a few more possibilities. One example that comes to mind is the decision we needed to make about where we should be for Pesach. Should we stay at home in our small city? Should we go to New York where we have many friends? Perhaps we should go to our parents or to my husband's parents? Maybe it should be 50-50. Then there's the option of traveling to Israel for Pesach and staying in a hotel in Yerushalayim. Where will our children feel best? Maybe we should go to Australia, England, or Switzerland, where we have relatives that we haven't seen in a long time. If we stay home, however, we would be able to invite a number of people who are unfamiliar with making a proper Seder. We were discussing this for a few weeks, and the more we discussed it, the further away we came from making a final decision. I was getting more and more nervous. If we would be staying home, I would need to hire help to assist me in cleaning up the house and prepare the food for Pesach. My husband kept telling me not to worry. We would certainly be reaching a decision in a day or two. But would we? I was skeptical. I was afraid we would decide at the very last minute and then only by default. If it would be too late to make travel plans, we would end up staying home and I would really need more time to prepare. I analyzed the situation. I saw that my husband would accept any decision about which I felt strongly, but I wanted us to decide together. I didn't want to make the decision on my own. That wouldn't be nice. I felt that if I were the one who decided, my husband would blame me if anything went wrong. I told my fears to my husband and he assured me that he wouldn't blame me if anything went wrong. Even though he said this, I knew that he might convey his displeasure non-verbally with his body language. However, when I focused on what would enable us to have the greatest amount of shalom bayis, marital harmony, I realized that we both would be best off if I made a quick decision, so I did. Making this decision taught me a few principles I now follow when we need to decide on something together. I now write down the pros and cons of each possibility. If either my husband or I feel strongly about an option and the other doesn't feel so strongly about it, we agree to do what the other the person who feels strongly about it suggests. I also see that when one path is much better for me than the other, because the other path will be highly distressing, I tell this to my husband and he is open to spare me that stress. He might kvetch a little about this, but he's giving me permission to ignore the kvetching. If we both don't mind too much which option we take, we arbitrarily choose one option so I don't have to experience the frustration of indecision. Case number seven. My husband had been Mr. Cool in Yeshiva. He learned well, and he had great qualities of character, or Midos. When anyone would talk about him, they would say, He's very cool. I always liked this quality in people. It's the diametric opposite of members of my family who were emotionally cold would be uncomfortable when my friends visit, if anyone in my family would be embarrassingly open. When I first met my husband, everything about him was an expression of his being a bit aloof. He wasn't arrogant or conceited, just cool. He was careful not to speak Lashon Hara, which is evil language, but when there wasn't a question of Lashon Hara, he was on the cynical side, and we know cynicism is not a good thing. His touch of aloofness, or feeling a little bit too much about himself, and cynicism, yet at the same time, his kindness and consideration, were very attractive to me when we dated. A few months into the marriage, however, I began to miss some of the emotionalism that was in my family. I told my husband a number of times that I wished he would be more emotionally expressive. He was too quiet. I still liked his basic personality, and I was happy with my marriage, but I wished he was more emotional. One day I bumped into a teacher who made our shirach, and I expressed my concerns to her that he was just a little too aloof, a little too quiet. She smiled a kind smile and said to me, I expected you to come to me one day to discuss this. If you recall, I mentioned to you that while I feel the two of you will be a good match, you will need to accept that you will be missing some of the emotional warmth of your family. I know that for you, being in that environment all the time is too much. But it's normal to miss it, and the further you're away from it, the more it might build up in your mind how wonderful it was, and how it's difficult that you don't have it anymore. Let me tell you something. I feel certain that in your case, with time and with children coming along the way, you'll be able to elicit more of your husband's emotions. He'll change with time. Meanwhile, try to accept him and value his positive qualities. As we say in this wonderful work of mine, choose your love and then love your choice. Okay. What happens when personalities are different and you don't do anything about it? Let me share with you an incredible story of a woman who writes about her life after her husband passed away. We can learn a lot from this story. How we have to be careful when we date. Have to check things out. Uh, this is going back now, post Holocaust era, when they didn't do much checking and people who just, you know, went into marriages quickly to build lives after the shattered experiences of, of Europe. But listen to this incredible story, and, and there are incredible lessons that can be gleaned from it. And a woman writes, "I just celebrated my 80th birthday, surrounded by my children, grandchildren, and quite a few great grandchildren. By nature, I'm not a very sentimental person." I was forced to grow up very quickly to become an adult at an age where most of my friends were still playing childish games. I worked hard all my life, raising a large family while trying to help my husband, a blessed memory, pay the bills, and I had very little time for reflection. Things are different now. I have time on my hands. I'm recently widowed and I live alone in a beautiful spacious apartment that my son bought for us some 15 years ago after he made a fortune in real estate. At first my husband, Yanko, wouldn't hear of moving to another apartment. What's wrong with the house we we raised, we we raised you? He said to my son. But my son, Lazer, somehow persuaded his father to agree to move up to an upscale beautiful apartment. Few people were happier than I when on my moving day. Our old apartment held too many memories, too many unshed tears, too many sleepless nights and exhaustion filled days. It contained the memories of detention and bewilderment I had felt as a young bride alone in a foreign country without my parents at my side on my wedding day. Because we're going to hear her story very soon. And she writes, I was born in 1940. My parents hid me in a non-Jewish neighbor's house during the Holocaust. When the war ended, my parents found each other, and then me and then they fled. Blood-soaked Europe for Palestine, which is Israel, shortly before Israel's War of Independence. We spent a few months in a transit camp and eventually moved to a small moshav or a settlement where my father had some distant relatives. My parents went on to have six more children, including a set of twins. They were incredibly poor. My father worked for a local farmer and spent hours in the fields tending the crops. We lived in a small cottage where the children were crammed into a tiny bedroom. But we spent most of our time running wild in the fields, beyond our settlement. As you know, Israel has many fields in kibbutzim. Growing strong and bronzed from the sun. Despite our poverty, we were happy, wonderful children. At the age of seven, I joined the other children of the Moshav who attended a Jewish school in a nearby slightly larger community. I had three years of schooling during which I, during which I learned the basics and then I graduated to adulthood. At the age of 13, as a young girl, I got my first job at the local supermarket, or, or I as they call it in Hebrew, turning over whatever I earned to my my parents. A few years earlier, while operating a tractor on the farm, my father had suffered an accident and was in constant pain. He was unable to work much. My mother did mending or sewing for women in the neighborhood community in order to help put food on the table. All my brothers and sisters also went to work at an early age because there was no other option. Even with the frugal lives we led, wearing castoffs and sandals we had long outgrown, there wasn't enough money for the basics. And this is very important, this backdrop, to understand what's going to happen in her life. A few days after my 16th birthday, I was in the supermarket working where I, when my sister Liba paid me a surprise visit. Dina, she said, looking over her shoulder to make sure no one was listening. Dina, somebody, someone's coming to see you. Someone's coming from a faraway place to see you. What in the world is she talking about? To see me for what? A she said, giggling. I overheard Abba and Ima whispering about it in the kitchen. It can't be, I argued. I'm not old enough to get married. A is like a young man. Why not? Ahuva, got mar- Ahuva, your friend got married last year and she's only 17. Ahuva was my neighbor's daughter who married a boy from a neighborhood settlement and moved to a kibbutz in the south against her parents' wishes. But I was not Ahuva and our home was very different. He's coming in a few minutes, Liba continued. No, he can't come. I panicked. I had no desire to get married. I'm going home. But you can't just leave the store, said Liba. And then she offered, and she offered to take my place. Thrilled at being granted a reprieve, I slipped out the back door and I ran all the way home. On my way, I collided with my father, who was limping along on his way to the Makolot. When he saw me, his eyes narrowed. What are you going home for, Dina? he said. You usually work until late. Lieber took over for me today, I mumbled as I ran inside the house. I flung myself onto my narrow bed that I shared with my two younger sisters, and I began to cry. My mother found me there a few minutes later, crying my heart out. In between sobs, I shared what Liba had told me, begging my mother to tell me, it's not true, mommy, right? I'm not getting married. It's not true. She was silent for a while, and then she said, Abba heard about a fine young man who came here from Belgium. He comes from a wealthy family, and is looking for a young girl who is refined. If you marry him, you won't have to work so hard in the supermarket anymore. You'll have a home of your own with plenty of food and clothing, and everything we cannot give you. I tried to argue with my mother, and later with my father, but their minds were made up. They insisted that Yanko, Klar, a young man in his mid-twenties, who recently deceased father had been a successful diamond merchant, was a dream ticket to me. Yanko was offering his future wife a life of prosperity and ease, provided that I moved to Belgium. He had heard about me through mutual relatives who spoke highly of my father and recommended the match. My parents loved me dearly, but they were struggling to feed and support their large family. Since my father's accident, things had gotten much worse. My parents struggled every day just to put food on the table. How would they marry off anybody or any of their siblings? Though I was only 16, my parents viewed this as a fantastic opportunity. I was mature and experienced in caring for my younger siblings, and they didn't think my age would be an obstacle. No one asked me how I felt about getting married at such a young age. No one asked me whether I agreed to marry a foreigner with whom I could barely converse, as I spoke Hebrew and he only spoke Yiddish. We had been raised with no questioning obedience to our parents. And their very word was law. The concept of respect for our one's elders was just the, the way it was. That's how we lived our lives. So we didn't question our parents. My father spoke to Yonkel for a while, and he was impressed with his maturity and his erlichkeit, or his refinement. He also spoke f- to one of his, his friends who knew Yankel's family from the old country and vouched to him. My fate was decided. I would become Yonkel's bride. Yonkel seemed nice enough. He was good looking, though was mostly quiet during our short conversation. I attribute that to our language barrier and to the fact that he's probably uncomfortable in his strange surrounding. And so upon my father's nodding and approval, I smiled and whispered, Mazel Tov. As my parents drank a the and signed the Tanaim, which is the contract of what the young man will agree to give and what the father of the girl will give, I was a Kala at the ripe old age of 16 and a half. I had no idea that my husband-to-be was 11 years older than I was, and that reports of his family's financial status were greatly exaggerated, as I was later to learn. In truth, Yanko's father had not been a diamond merchant. It was all a a made-up story. But he was a simple diamond cutter who had died in debt. Yanko lived with his widowed mother in a small apartment, and worked at a low-paying job, so the whole thing was a fake-out. He had been looking for a shidduch for many years, and was overjoyed to have found one. In the 1950s, when modern psychology had not yet been born, and people were labeled interesting and reclusive rather than having letters of alphabets assigned to them like we have today, I had no idea that Yankel's lengthy silences, his insistence on adhering to a strict schedule, and his interest in emotional aspects of life signified anything more than a personality type one of the main things that I make sure that I put down on people's top 10 lists when I draw them up for them is the person, person emotionally healthy is he emotionally balanced is he, emotionally, is he or she emotionally stable is he or she emotionally balanced that's very important we must check into that today perhaps my, Yanko might be diagnosed with some disorder but in Europe in the 1950s he was simply considered different the plan was that Yanko would eventually bring our entire family to Europe and support them after all he was a wealthy young man Yanko returned home two days after our vort. I was to follow shortly afterward, boarding with distant relatives who would help me set up my apartment. My parents were to follow a few months later, right before my wedding, which was scheduled for late summer. Yanko will send us money for tickets, my father explained. Maybe he'll send enough so that Liba can come with us for the wedding too. Liba was her, Dina's younger sister. Liba was only 15 months younger than I, and the thought of having her at my wedding cheered me up greatly. Still, I was miserable throughout the boat journey across the Mediterranean. And I cried for most of it. My mother's cousin met me at the port and accompanied me to my lodgings, keeping me up a steady chatter and assuring me that though everything seemed strange, it would get easier with time. I had no idea that it would be several long years before I would even see my parents again. Because the idea, the, the, the proposal that they would come for the wedding was just pure nonsense. I didn't know that I would be accompanied to the chuppah by strangers. And that my life as a married woman would be very different from what I'd expected. I didn't see much of Yankel during our engagement, but I did meet his mother, a very sorrowful widow with whom I could barely exchange two words. In the meantime, I became increasingly anxious since the apartment Yankel had chosen for us was on the fourth floor of a decrepit apartment building some distance from the heart of the Jewish community. Where were the beautiful furnishings that I'd been promised? What about the linens and the true soul that I'd been promised? And most importantly, where were my parents who who I was promised were going to attend and they would be to be sent tickets to come to the wedding? They weren't coming for the wedding, I soon discovered. To my consternation, Yanko had sent them tickets, and they were too polite to demand tickets. The woman who was taking care of me until the wedding was appalled that my parents were not coming. If your parents want to come, they'll find a way to pay for it, she said. Eventually, I summoned the courage to send a messenger to Yanko to ask him about the tickets for my parents, but I never got a straight answer from him. Apparently there was no money for tickets. Yanko and his mother couldn't afford it, and neither could my parents. On my wedding day, I was accompanied to the chuppah by two virtual strangers, the distant relatives who had graciously taken me into their home. As I stood next to Yanko under the chuppah, I knew I should use the time to daven and beseech God for my descendants. But all I thought was an intense grief. I was barely 17 and I was getting married to someone I hardly knew without any family at my side. I somehow survived the night, allowing the guests to dance with me, smiling and saying the right things until the wedding was over. After all the guests had left, I stood next to my new husband, ready to follow him to our apartment. Wait a moment, he said to me. I'll be right back. I watched as he approached the caterer, reached into his pocket, and took out a wad of bills, which he counted and handed to him. He did the same with the photographer and the musician. Then he returned to me. You're paying for everything now, I asked? Yes, I just paid for our wedding with the money that we got as gift money. I was stunned. In Eretz Stroll in Israel, people gave household items to the husband, to the bride and groom. Apparently here in Europe, it was the custom to give the young couple money. But why did Yankel have to use the money that we got as gifts to pay for the wedding? What happened to all the money he supposedly had? My father passed away with a lot of outstanding debt, Yankel said to me. He was sick for a while, and he ate up his savings. I had nothing else left to pay for our wedding. Then what are we going to live on, I asked. She's going, experiencing one nightmare after the next. I'll look for a better job, said Yankel. And I'm sure you're willing to work hard too. They said you're a very energetic young woman. I nodded. I did have a lot of energy, but I was stunned. I also had a lot of questions about my new life with Yankel. But I needed, needed, need, didn't need to worry. He had it all figured out. A day after our last Sheva Brachas, Yankel informed me that he found me a job in the local bakery. Kneading dough and baking bread. Wow. What a life. Thus began my new life as a quote unquote pampered bride. I worked hard in the bakery, and later in a butcher shop to help support our family. In the meantime, Yanko held a series of odd jobs at which he earned minimum wage, so much for the wealthy guy that was supposed to marry her. I wondered why he didn't seem to last long at any job, but had no one to ask. Our children were born close together, and I cared for them alone with no help from Yanko. He was clumsy with the children, and he claimed that crying babies made him anxious. He also needed his sleep at night, which meant that I remained awake during the endless nights without any help from him. Life was challenging, busy, and also very lonely. I had no friends or relatives and virtually no support system. My parents had no idea what I was going through, and I didn't tell them. I shed many tears. Yanko's mother came over from time to time, mostly to offer advice and suggestions about how I can manage better, if I did things her way. Yanko was completely submissive to his mother. He visited her every day, and she made most of the decisions in our life. It seemed like a nightmare. Looking back, I realized that there was a period when I was quite depressed. There were days I didn't want to get out of bed. I felt trapped and cried a lot. I fantasized about leaving Yanko uncle and going back home to my parents and siblings. But it was just that, a pure fantasy. The idea of divorce in that era was a shameful thing. People didn't get divorced in the 1950s. I didn't have the courage or the emotional strength to go through with it. And I couldn't bear to hurt my defenseless children or my parents. It would crush them. Throughout those years, I kept in touch with my parents via letters and the occasional phone call, which was very expensive. How I yearned to go visit them in Israel, to see my brothers and sisters, several of whom I had married in the interim that I didn't even see. But travel was impractical, not to mention so expensive back then. Now lonely I was, how I was trapped in my tiny apartment with an emotionally distant husband, no money, few friends and a house full of young children. Even though I had not put myself in this position, I was also embarrassed to admit the truth about my life. Six years after my wedding, my parents finally managed to scrape enough money together for the plane ride to come to visit me in Belgium. It was an emotional reunion. We embraced and I introduced them to the grandchildren they had never met. During their stay, my parents quickly realized that I had, they had been misled and that things were not as they had imagined them at all. Not only was I living in abject poverty, but they saw that something about Yankel was really off emotionally. They asked quietly if I was happy. And when I broke into tears, they asked if I would consider divorce. I had three small children close in age and I was expecting my fourth, where would I go if I were to get divorced? Although Yanko was an absentee father, and a husband even when he was home, he never raised his voice or heard us in any way. He just did not know how to relate to people. Perhaps today we would say maybe he has Asperger's. I knew that if I left him, my children would be tainted by the stigma of divorce. And so I told my parents that it was okay, that I would make it work. We hugged and cried when I accompanied my parents to the airport. I knew I couldn't see them, I wouldn't see them again for a long time, and it was right. The next time they came was for my eldest son's bar mitzvah. The years passed quickly. I gave birth to six children and raised them alone in our tiny apartment while I worked part-time with little encouragement and almost no support. Yet Hashem was good to me. My children were sweet and good-natured. Easy to raise, which gave me the courage to keep forging ahead. I cooked nourishing meals for them. I kept them clean. And I taught them to be mentioned. To have good meadows and care for each other. So while one person may not get one thing, but they get something else. Hashem is always so balanced in the way He deals with If He hits us with a challenge, but He makes sure that other areas are good in our life. Things improved a bit after we married, we married off our older children and the younger ones were no longer babies. My husband found a steady job and our income was a little bit more stable though we were never able to afford a larger apartment. But my marriage, ever married by turbulence or discord, was lonely and unfulfilling. Your uncle was a lone man and the children respected him. But we didn't have much of a relationship. I cannot recall any conversation we had that lasted more than five minutes. It was as though I was living with a shadow. I made some friends but mostly I got used to the loneliness. What a sad situation. I never burdened my children with my pain, though they must have sensed it as they grew older. It wasn't something I spoke about, not with the children and certainly not with Yanko, with whom I had no idea what I was talking about. He didn't understand the language of emotional connection and didn't have the same needs as I did. He retired when he was 65 and he went to learn in Kola, which had always been his dream. I took up knitting, a luxury I never had time for during the hectic years when I was raising my children. I began knitting adorable booties and blankets for my grandchildren. Yanko's sudden death should have been a very sad day for me, but I just felt empty as I stood at his funeral. I was bidding him farewell. I was bidding farewell to the stranger I had been married to for more than 60 years. He never mistreated me, and I had no bad memories of him to be sure, but no good memories either. The years were mostly a blur of sleepless nights, busy days, and indescribable loneliness. I quietly asked Yanko for forgiveness when he was laying in the grave for the fact that we did not have a normal marriage. Though I don't know if he was capable of having a normal marriage. Then I sat shiva for the husband of my youth, whom I'm buried along with my childhood dreams. Why did I choose to tell this? Perhaps after all these years I needed to unburden myself. Perhaps in some small way my story can give other people hope. Because life can be cyclical, and today I have found happiness. Although most of my life was filled with loneliness and struggle, I now have plenty of satisfaction and nachas from the beautiful family I raised. Children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren who are all wonderful, refined and who are building homes of Torah and fear of Hashem. My days are filled with joy seeing them and their children thrive. I daven and pray that they'll always have the same happiness I was denied and also the happiness I'm finally reaping in my golden years. And I'd like to close with an incredible story about a woman who grew up Catholic and discovered what it means to be dated as a Jew and become a Jewish wife. Let me start at the beginning. I was born in sunny California to two lovely non-Jewish parents. When I was just a few years old, my parents decided to return to their Midwestern roots, which offered greater proximity to grandparents. Our family grew to include my younger brother as we bounced around between Cincinnati and Chicago for the next eight years, settling in Des Moines, Iowa, when I was 10. There we stayed amid the corn and soybean fields. No, we didn't own a cow or sheep or any livestock. We lived in a pleasant subdivision with nice neighbors, and I had a very typical suburban childhood. I was a good girl, and did what was expected of me, which mainly meant working hard and making good choices. We went to church every Sunday, and I participated in our church's youth group. I did well in school, had a nice group of friends, and was very active with extracurricular activities. After high school, I went to a small liberal arts college in Missouri, where I studied music. When I got to college, though, I found that doing what I was expected of me was more complicated. It seemed that college wasn't just about good grades. It's supposed to be having fun. And I decided to involve myself in a lot of quote-unquote new experiences. Being religious was considered very uncool. What 18-year-old wants to be uncool in America? Not me. So I proceeded to do what was expected. Had a bunch of new experiences and became very confused and miserable. My career plans were to study music on the graduate level, leading to work as a professional classical musician. To my teacher's surprise though, I failed to get into the schools that I applied to. I found myself completely adrift. I was graduating with honors, but moving back in with my parents. While I was in college, my parents had moved from Des Moines to St. Louis, Missouri. Not only was I not moving forward, going to a new school, I was moving to a completely unfamiliar city where I didn't have the benefit of familial landmarks or neighbors or friends. As I tried to figure out what the next step in my life should be, I got an entry-level job at a local law firm where I acclimated to the new corporate culture. After a short while, I noticed a very distinct pattern. On Monday, we all come in, we talk about what we did over the weekend, we complain about it being Monday, and gossip about our coworkers and bosses. Eventually we get around to doing some work. As the weekend approached, we talk about what we're planning to do over the weekend. The weekend would arrive, we would carry out our plans, and then Monday it would come around and we'd start the whole cycle over again. After a few months of this, I began to feel uneasy. This was life? Was this what life's supposed to be? Was this what I could expect for the next 40 years of my life? I just thought that it would be, I don't know, more substantial. More depth. You could say I was having a midlife crisis. This is when the strangest phenomenon started happening. People started asking me if I was Jewish. The first time it happened was outside my office building. I would go outside on my break, and sometimes there was a guy from another office in the same building who was on break at the same time, and we would start to talk. One day he asked me, so, what temple or synagogue do you go to? I don't, I replied. I'm not Jewish. Oh, he said, and then there was a really awkward silence. The next time it happened was at a party. A girl, a friend of a friend, turned to me and said, So, are you a member of the tribe? Which means, are you Jewish? Oh, not me, I replied. Then there was the coffee shop incident, with the guy who asked me if I was on H.com. Then there was a hip-hop concert I went to, where someone asked me point-blank if I was Jewish. So she's getting these messages from upstairs, again and again. And then there was the time I was at a bar. It's okay, I said, beyond uncomfortable, and not knowing what to say it's not okay, he insisted you're right, it's not okay but I'm not the person you should be apologizing to these strange encounters went on for months I didn't know what to make of them one day when I was having lunch with my mother I mentioned all these encounters to my mom oh yeah, that happened to my mother all the time too my mom said, what? His, her mother had been a hairdresser in Milwaukee and she'd had a number of Jewish clients who insisted that she must be Jewish because she looked so Jewish I'd grown up thinking my mother's mother had been German so this was very new information for me As if all these incidents weren't enough to pique my interest, I found a clue to my more personal connection. I was going through boxes in my parents' basement, and I found a genealogy project I had done when I was in 8th grade. The project showed my lineage pretty far up my mother's side. The name of the family that came over from Europe in the mid-1800s was Kramer, which is a very Jewish name. There were also Millers and Newmans, which are very Jewish names. Just like that, I realized that maybe all those people had been on to something. Maybe I did have Jewish ancestry, after all, in my blood. If I had Jewish ancestry, I might as well see what being Jewish is all about. I would had Jewish friends and neighbors growing up. My piano teacher had been Jewish. My knowledge of all things Jewish didn't extend much beyond matzo ball soup. But I remember that the coffee shop guy had told me about a Jewish website. So I went to H.com and started reading. And those of you who know, it's a great website. It's full of beautiful, rich content about Jewish articles. So she writes, I was floored by what I found. Full disclosure, the first articles I read were dating advice. I never had a problem with getting good grades and doing well professionally, but when it came to my personal dating life, I was floundering. There was no real guidance apart from magazines that frankly gave horrible advice in the non-Jewish world. None of my friends were having any success either in dating. It was a total disaster. I was relieved and amazed to read article after article full of advice, and suggestions that were so refreshing, that made so much sense, that was so validating. From there, I went on to read about the laws that govern social interactions. I was completely astonished that such a set of rules for social interaction actually existed in the world. Growing up, I've been taught morality. I knew the golden rule that you were supposed to treat others the way you want to be treated. We tried our best to be good people, sure, but I was always a little fuzzy on the details. When push came to shove, when relationships got complicated, I didn't have anything more than vague for aphorisms to guide me. But here, on the pages of this Jewish website, ish.com, were guidelines, actual guidelines, for how to interact with people. In a staggering number of potential situations a person might find themselves in. They were vast. They were comprehensive. They were in detail. If you see a friend and an enemy unloading a donkey at the same time, you have to help your enemy first, says the Torah. Because doing an act of kindness will soften your heart, and you're not supposed to hate anyone anywhere. The Torah writes, you should not hate your, your fellow or brother in your heart. And there were actual laws about, against gossip, slander, Incredible. I found myself thinking that if there was a community where people were trying to live according to these laws, I want to live in this community. I want to be with those people. I felt like I found the syllabus to living a great life. A meaningful life. A life where I had to have the tools to handle any situation that came my way. And I wanted in on this new life. I wanted in, I wanted to join this community. There was just one problem. And that problem was... Most of my ancestors were probably all Lutherans, because they had forgotten that they were Jews, and they are all buried in non-Jewish cemeteries. And if anyone had ever been Jewish, it would have been way, way back in Europe, and halachically, it would be basically impossible to confirm. So I was faced with a dilemma. In order to live according to this incredible life syllabus, I was going to have to convert, and I would have to undergo an orthodox conversion. This was not in my five-year plan. It was weird. I mean, really weird. I didn't know anyone who had just changed religions, And I wasn't even religious. It's not like I was going from one religion to another. I was going from nothing to religious. I had no idea where to even start. But how could I I not try? How could I know that there was a Torah in the world, that there was a community of people who were living according to these perfect rules, this amazing way of living, and not try to go there? How could I just go back to my office job and talk about my weekend plans? It was inconceivable. Since the only Jews I'd ever known were Reformed Jews, that's where I started. I tried out a few different synagogues, but nothing felt like a fit. It didn't feel like what I'd been reading about. After about a year of muddling around, I ended up at the H office. I can only imagine what kind of first impression I made there. A confused 25-year-old, very colorful, very liberal, very earnest, but also very clueless person about from social code. My first Shabbos, I showed up at the townhouse of the rabbi with a bumper sticker on my car that said, Well-behaved women rarely make history. The rabbi didn't say anything, but I remember how he raised his eyebrows when he saw it. I had a lot to learn. And learn I did. I learned in classes. I learned one-on-one. I learned listening to endless tapes from speakers while I worked at my office job. I spent Shabbos after Shabbos with kind, brave people who led me into their homes and their lives and taught me what it meant to be a Jew. Wow, incredible. I soaked up as much as I could, paying attention to everything from how people spoke, to what they wore, to how they did their hair. I wanted to show that I was an excellent candidate to join the Jewish people. That despite my somewhat colorful past, I could absolutely make it in this new orthodox Jewish society. I could follow all the rules, the halachic ones and the unspoken ones. It's not for the faint of heart joining the Jewish Orthodox community. I made many painful mistakes. I invited myself to weddings, asked embarrassing questions, imposed myself where I shouldn't have, and I failed to show up for Shabbos meals, but I was young and determined, and I plowed ahead. That's what we need, motivation, and a desire to get close to Hashem. And after about a year, I joined the Jewish people. Everyone encouraged me to go spend some time learning in Israel. So shortly after my conversion, I headed off to that wonderful seminary called Nevei Yerushalayim where I spent an incredible year learning in depth and falling in love with the land of Israel coming from a small out of town community it was amazing to be completely surrounded by the Jews all the time and to be so completely surrounded by Jewish history to have access to the graves of great tzaddikim, righteous people, to gedolim, great rabbis, to get to see the sunset from the top of Harnoff. I was in heaven. At seminary, I didn't just learn how to read a Rambam, I also re- read, received priceless guidance about my musical abilities. When I started pursuing my conversion, I had assumed that my time as a clarinerist was finished. Most performances are on Shabbos, so pursuing a career was impossible. When the principal of Neve Yerushalayim found out I was a musician. He told me that I absolutely must practice every day. Just because I became a Jew and religious, he said, doesn't mean I should leave everything behind. You have innate talents, and God wants you to use them to to use them to make people happy. That was definitely not what I was expecting to hear, but I took it seriously. Over the course of that year, I performed and taught on campus, played in community orchestra, and taught at a music school in Bnei Brak once a week. After my year was up, because my money had basically dried up. I planned to work in the summer so I could finance another year of learning. My rabbi encouraged me to date while I was home, which I was highly skeptical about. I mean, I was going back to St. Louis, which doesn't exactly have a huge dating pool of Orthodox Jews. Besides, I was sure that my soulmate was in Israel, because that's where I was going to spend the rest of my life. But if my rabbi said I should date, I figured I should do my eshtadus, my effort, and listen to him. Man plans, and you know the rest. After about a month before I was due to return to Israel, I met my husband. He was living in Memphis, but his brother lived in St. Louis at the time. His name had come up before, but he was always busy, so I kind of forgot about him. When my husband, who actually wasn't busy for once, came up to meet a new niece in St. Louis, he found out he was going on a date with me. I was also caught unaware, and I wasn't able to check his references before we went out. Because I remembered that they drilled it into our heads in Neve Yerushalayim to always check those references. We had a good first date, I checked his references, and we got engaged the first night of salichus. So instead of going back for a second year of seminary, or looking for apartments in Israel, we moved to Memphis, where my husband finished up his final semester of medical school, and then moved to Cleveland for his residency program. And the story goes, she went on to have five children, become an integral part of her local Orthodox community, become a pianist, learn and teach piano to many children, and teach them many musical instruments. But the most important thing was her desire to become part of our nation, to become part of people How she admired our goals, our hashkafah, our outlook. How she admired the way that we live as a society. And that's the lesson we have to take from her. Her motivation, her ambition, to be able to become part of our world and to see the beauty of Orthodox Jewish dating. At this point, I want to thank everyone for joining us for today's share. Anyone out there from anywhere in the world would like my help in any way, in Shaduchim, we're sitting to putting together a top 10 list. Or if you have a question regarding a relationship that you're in, please feel free to reach out to me at 305-206-1916. Or you can email me at drjackcohen 18 at gmail.com. D-R-J-A-C-K-C-O-H-E-N-1-8 at gmail.com. Have a fantastic week and a great Shabbos. Thank you. You've just experienced another Torah class. Brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.